All right, all right. Hey, welcome uh, to Rockbridge. My name is Matt. Uh, just excited about the opportunities we have for our students and for our kids, uh, even in the midst of various restrictions and things that we're that are going on in our various communities. Hey, I want to welcome you in all six of our communities. Also, want to welcome you if you're tuning in via Facebook or YouTube or Rockbridge Online. However, you're with us, you're with us, and we're glad that you're here. We're in this series called Dear Church, which where we've been navigating and walking through the book of Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. So uh, if you've got a Bible, we're going to start being chapter 3 today. We're in part 5 of this series. It's a seven-part series that we're taking on uh, through the summer. So like many of you, I think it, with all the restrictions and, and various uh, safer-at-home orders and advice that we've been getting, a lot of us take on home projects, right? So one of our fam the Evans family projects has been to kind of clean out and, and deal with your garage, you know, which kind of becomes a cesspool of old stuff and kick toys your kids have outgrown and, and balls that have been busted and, and, and are flat and this, that, and the other. So we, we took this project on and two of my boys, one of my boys and I, we had to run to the store and get a tub of something and Beth and the other one are at home. And then we pull back in the driveway and as we pull into the driveway, here's what we see. It's just stretched across our driveway was about a five foot long snake, right? It wasn't in our garage that we know of, but it could have been because the garage was so nasty. And what was interesting was my family's different responses to the snake. I had one family member who didn't even see it, and I was like, it's, it's right there in front of us, and didn't even see it. One family member headed for the hills. I'm talking about they didn't want to be five feet. It was not social distancing from the snake. It was get out of Dodge and completely away from the snake. And then two of us were more curious, and we were just sort of getting close enough to see what kind was. And it wasn't really a, a dangerous snake like a garden snake, it kind of the ones that your, your grandfather said, hey, you want to keep those ones around because they kill rodents and they keep the bad snakes away. But what was interesting, though, is just that response to danger, to potential danger. And the scary sort of thing about that is the snake was around before we were aware of it. Well, today, as we look at the church at Sardis, we're going to talk about a danger that you and I are, are in all the time. But we may not be aware of this danger. And it's a lot more serious than a non-poisonous snake that was sort of lurking around the Evans house. And it's this danger that I personally believe, and I'm not going to speak necessarily prophetically, but I personally believe this danger is the gravest danger for the church in America, for the church in this season that we're in, and for you and I as individuals who are walking forward uh, in faith or even checking out our faith. And, and so this danger, whether you're aware of it or not, exists. This danger is important that we have the right response to this. And so we'll see what it is as we open up God's Word. Revelation chapter 3, we'll begin reading <clears throat> in verse number 1. Here's the word of God to us. So he says, and, and this is Jesus talking through revelation, through a vision that he gave to a, his, one of his disciples named John. And he always begins with a, with a specific introduction, welcome to, or he says, write to the angel of the church in Sardis. And, he's, and he gives a description of himself. And I, I've been saying all along, and, and I, I want us to remember this, that the vision of Jesus given in, the, in, these, in these letters corresponds to the problem or the issue or the need of the church. 
The vision of Jesus, the unique description of Jesus, corresponds to what they were facing, which is pretty remarkable that God, when we see him as he is, and and when we get a complete and accurate vision of God, it addresses the need of the hour. It addresses the need of the moment. And I, I personally believe one of the greatest needs you and I have, one of the greatest needs the church and the world has, is to have what I'll call a transforming vision of God. A transforming vision of God. You know, our culture, our society, the church you were brought up in hands us this vision of God. And and oftentimes that vision of God distorts your faith and messes with your faith. Some of you were handed a vision of God that God is mean, judgmental, and vindictive. Some of you were handed a vision of God that God was distant. And if, if anything good was going to happen to you, you know, God helps those who help themselves. Some of you were handed a vision of God that God's good, but he's not all that powerful. And, and so it's only as we get a better, more accurate vision of God that we are then equipped and enabled to face whatever it is we're facing with victory and endurance and power. It's only when we have this transforming vision of God that we're able to become the people God created us to become and died for us to become and rose from the dead to put his power in us to enable us to become that kind of person. So what's the vision of God that the church at Sardis receives by the grace of God? Thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God. So the number seven in Scripture, especially in the book of Revelation, means complete, whole, perfect, finished, full, 100%, nothing lacking. So the seven spirits of God would mean Jesus has the fullness or is the fullness of God. That mysterious thing that Jesus is 100% human, but also 100% God. He's fully God, complete and perfect. And this one, Jesus, has the seven stars. So again, a number of completeness in his light, in his ability to penetrate darkness. He's full and he's complete. So if you take that and flip it, What's the danger that's going to be present in this letter to the church at Sardis? What's the issue? Well, the danger is that they have an incomplete or a quote, what I'll call a less than Jesus. The danger is that they have an incomplete or a less than Jesus, a less than vision of God. And so if we're not careful and we adopt a less than vision of Jesus, it'll impact us and it'll affect us. So let's go back to the beginning. Many of you have heard the story of Adam and Eve. And if we were doing, you know, Bible trivia and I said, hey, what was the first sin in the Garden of Eden? Most of us would raise our hand and say, hey, well, they ate the fruit that God told them not to eat. And that was sort of the, the, the weed on the surface that of how the sin manifested. But the root of the sin was Adam and Eve believed an incomplete vision of God that was given to them by Satan. Satan said, God didn't, does God really say? Satan said, hey, look at this thing. It's good and it's pleasing and you can live forever. God can't be trusted. God can't be good for you or God is not out for your complete goodness. How many of us have believed the same thing? I can't be complete in God. God's holding out on me. God, I can be happier if I have God and. I can be happier if I take God away on spring break or away from my money or away from this. I can be happier without God. And so the original sin is Satan attacked their view of God. 
Go back, Genesis 1, read it, right? Every day, God said it was good. God said it was good. God said it was good. Go on into the last day, and it was very good. Go to the blessing to Adam and Eve. They lacked nothing because they had fullness of God, complete God, and Satan attacked that. That's the original sin. I, I think about my own story. And, you know, when I, I became a Christian, when I was about eight years old, and I got the whole notion that I was a sinner, I couldn't save myself, I needed, you know, a, a, a salvation apart from myself that I couldn't provide for myself, I got all of that. What I didn't understand at age eight was that in Christ, I also got an identity, in Christ, I got an identity. So I remember growing up, I used to pray, and I'd ask God to help me with this and help me with that. What I was really asking God to do is, God, give me an identity apart from you. Bless my performance. Bless what people think of me, that kind of stuff. And, and you know, one of the grave crises in the 21st century is an existential crisis. Who am I? And so most of us out here are battling an identity based on performance, based on what people think of us, or based on our possessions. And you look at God, you're like, God, help me do better, help me to have more, help these people to like me. Those are three of your prayer requests. And you get mad at God when God doesn't answer those prayer requests, right? Because we don't see that in Christ, the complete view of Christ, God declares who we are. God gives us an identity that cannot be taken away, that will not perish, that will not spoil. He speaks over you that you can be a son or you can be a daughter of God. So, so my point of all that is there's a danger in us sitting here with a flannel graph view of Jesus. There's a danger of us in not seeing and not grasping the complete Jesus. And, and so for the church at Sardis, he says, look, there's the seven spirits and the seven stars of Christ. And all this corresponds to what we see in Scripture. Look at what Paul says in Colossians 1.18. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ. Christ is fully God. He's complete. He's perfect. And then that, that lines up with how Paul prays for people. So you want, think about how you want people to pray for you. God, remove this problem. God, help me get through this. God, give me this. Don't let this happen. Listen to how Paul prays for people that he loves deeply. The church at Ephesus, he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Christ, who's fully God, may dwell in your heart through faith, through your trust, through your belief. I pray that you then would be rooted and firmly established in love so that you can comprehend with all the saints, all the believers, what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love and as as you grasp this love and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So you don't have part of God, so that you don't have just a, a small view of God. You completely understand the fullness of God who dwells in you by faith. That's Paul's vision for people. And so the church at Sardis is going to have some kind of issue here. Now it gets even better. Jesus promises this in John 14, 27. He says, I have told you these things. He said, excuse me, he says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. That's perfect peace. That's peace that can't be taken, peace that can't be shaken. And he says, I don't give to you as the world gives. You know, the world wants to give you peace, but it's a pseudo peace, right? It's a false peace. It's a fragile peace. It's a peace that, hey, it works if the economy's good. It's a peace that works as long as nobody's dying 
before they're supposed to die, right? It's the peace that, you know, is dependent upon the weather outside. It's the peace that's dependent on what they say about you on social media. It's a peace that's dependent upon who wins a presidential election. And Jesus said, no, 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 I don't give you that kind of peace. I'll give you the kind of peace that can survive anything and thrive in anything. And he says, don't let your hearts be troubled or fearful. Some of you here today would say, I need that kind of peace. You know what that kind of peace is contingent upon? You and I getting a big, complete vision of Jesus. And then he goes in John 15, 11, another promise that Christ makes. He says, I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Most of us here today, we would have what I call an incomplete joy. Because we're afraid, because we're anxious, because we're stressed. And the solution to that is you think God ought to remove it or give you relief from it. I believe what God wants to give to you is a vision of himself that overcomes it. So that you walk out of here, you live your life with this peace and with this joy. Because there was not a happier human being on earth than Jesus Christ. And if you don't see that he was happy, and if you don't see that he offers a peace that transcends, and if you don't see that he is this perfect and complete being, you will hesitate to follow, to obey, and to walk forward with him in faith into whatever it is you face. And so see this right here, church. An incomplete Jesus leads to an incomplete me and you. If I don't get the scope of his completeness, Paul says it this way. Paul says it this way. He says there's incalculable riches in Christ. Unfathomable is another translation. Can't be measured riches in Christ. So if you and I, and let's ask God to help us, even right now, all of you watching physically, watching online, watching, listen, however, pray this right now in your spirit and your mind, God, give me a bigger vision of you. God, give me a better vision of you. God, give me a more complete vision of you. Because that right there is the root of your problems, but it's also the source of the path forward. Because incomplete Jesus is incomplete us. And so then we look at God's commitment to us. You know, God has a commitment to you. That God's committed to you. Maybe not in the way you think he should be, but here's how God is committed to you. Paul says this. This is a promise of God. You can pray it over your soul, pray it over everything. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ or at the day of Christ Jesus. On the final day when history is consummated, when history climaxes at the second coming, Jesus will complete this good work in us. So Jesus is committed to completion in us committed to completion in us. And and so as we move forward in this text, and we're going to say some challenging things, and we're going to say some hard things, and this is going to step on some toes, but you got to remember this. The depth of God's love defines the scope of his commitment. The depth of his love for us defines the scope of his commitment to us. Okay? Imagine you you, you have a teacher, and you, you imagine you got kids, you put them in school, And your teacher looks at your child and says, hey, I am committed to get them reading at a second grade level. And you're like, well, well, but they're just going into third grade. You you wouldn't, you would say, I want a new teacher. Imagine you you, you put your kids on a ball team and the coach says, hey, I'm going to teach them about 50% of what they need to know. You're like, I need another team. I need another coach. 
As, as a parent, do you want your kids to reach their potential? Do you parent them in that direction? Of course you do. Why? Because you love them. So God loves us too much to stop short of completion, to stop short of fullness of joy, to stop short of complete and perfect peace that transcends. He loves us too much. So when he speaks to you tonight and this weekend, however you're watching, when he speaks to you, he's speaking because he loves you. And when we love people that much, and when we love people so much, we can't leave them as they are. We got to move them to where to the vision that God has for them. He's going to say some hard things, but it's because that's 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 correlates to the depth and the scope and the width and the breadth of His commitment to us. So here's Sardis, and he says this: I know your works. You have a name. You have a reputation. People think of you a certain way. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. He says, you look okay. People around you would say, hey, you're a spiritual person. You're a good person. You're a moral person. You're a religious person. But I know the true you. And inside, he says, you are dead. We're not even moving toward completion. Let me tell you the history of the church, uh, of the city of Sardis. The city of Sardis kind of sat up on a hill and it had a, a wall around it, but the wall didn't go all the way around it. And there was some like uh, <clears throat> some rocks that became part of the city wall or the city's protection. And, and, and so they never posted guards in that section of the city. Sardis was conquered twice in its history. And the enemy came in each time in the unguarded area. They were apathetic. They were complacent. They looked okay, but they weren't okay. There was danger that they weren't aware of, but was lurking all around them. So what problem is Jesus attacking? And it stems from an incomplete view of him. And it, to me, it's the problem of the church in America. If I, if I ask you this question, hey, what's the most dominant, popular, pervasive religion in America? Most of us would say, well, it's, it's Christianity in all its form, you know, Catholic, Protestant, you know, non-denominated. It's Christianity. I, I'd say you're wrong. But you can't measure this Christianity on a survey or an exit poll or in a census questionnaire. You can't measure it. Most dominant form of, Christ, uh, of religion in America is, is what I would call nominal Christianity. Christian in name only. People professing Jesus without possessing him in his fullness. Say it again. People professing Jesus in name only, but they don't possess his fullness. They don't have a complete vision of him. And so here's what it looks like in practicality. It's some combination of belief in some general Bible concepts uh, mixed in with the hope that if I'm basically a good person, God will help me out when I need him and take me to heaven when I die. But I'm in control of my life. I, I don't have to obey anybody but my autonomous self. God's going God's to work on my behalf because I'm at least comparatively a decent person. Yeah, I believe in Easter. Yeah, I believe in Christmas. Boom, I have a reputation for being good or being spiritual or being alive or being an okay person, but inside, dead. And, and I think that's the grave danger for maybe you who are listening and maybe for us in this room. 
And so what Jesus wants to do in this letter, this letter is preserved for us, is to wake us up. Because some of us have slipped here or are living here. So some of us uh, don't understand the scope of Christ. And, and thus we're following an, an image of God that we've created. That maybe makes us feel safe and comfortable but we're just not aware of the snake in our hearts, in the garden, around the house. So Paul or John begins to give through Christ through John gives this remedy. He starts to, he says, hey, you got to be alert. You got to wake up. You got to be alert that there's danger and strengthen what remains, which is about to die. You're in danger. For I have not found your works complete, remember his goal, his commitment, before my God. So, so the first thing that we do to avoid this drift or to get out of this state is we have to become alert to the very danger that's around us. The first thing that we have to do is realize, hey, I, I'm in danger. It's like when nobody used to, I don't know if I'm going to date myself as a kid of the 80s, but in the 80s when I was growing up, it was sort of optional if you wore a seatbelt. And, and they had to go through this massive process to wake us up to, hey, if you don't wear a seatbelt, here's what could happen. And, and slowly but surely, laws began to change, behaviors began to change, because people became alert to the danger. And, and so he's saying, hey, you got to wake up. You're unguarded here. You got to wake up that, hey, that there's more to Christ than you know, and more to Christ than, than you're following. And, and this becomes the grave danger. You know, and I, I, I think. I think there's a challenge that the church is in right now. Not just Rockbridge, but the church in general. Because of the coronavirus, a lot of our spiritual practices have been disrupted. Correct? Whether that's meeting with our Bible study group, meeting with our mentors, or, or, or meeting physically for corporate worship. I mean, we're slowly inching our way back. But increasingly, I'm hearing and seeing in our church and other pastors around the country, a lot of people have just gotten out of the habit. A, a lot of people, you know, like without the, you know, the, you know uh, watching online is okay and, 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 and everything. And, but, you know, occasionally I, I, I'm not in the mood or, I, you know, I get distracted. And, and, and all that's a product of what? Are we dropping our guard? Do we recognize there's dangers? Do we recognize there's a danger greater than COVID out there? Do we recognize there's a danger other than our guy not getting elected to the White House? I mean, I see people more emotional about presidential politics, do I wear a mask or not, than the fact of the matter is we spiritually are always in a state of war because Satan wants you and I to drift away from the fullness, the completeness of Christ. I mean, think about how mad people are getting right now. How vigilant they are. I say black lives matter. Some of you get frustrated and mad and question me. I say the unborn matter. Emotions in the wrong place. Vigilance is in the wrong place. 
We're vigilant about our political beliefs. We're vigilant about our conveniences and our comforts. Are we vigilant about apprehending, living for this complete Christ who offers this fullness of joy, peace that the world can't give or have or t- and offer to us? Are we alert? Because I, I, everybody listen to me. Satan never takes a vacation. Our flesh is never fully silenced or subdued and the world around us is always enticing us. Always. Always. And so we got to wake up. We have to wake up and protect and guard what we cherish most which should be the faith we have in King Jesus. And then Paul says, hey, you got to fight this fight. He says, strengthen what remains before it dies. So nobody's perfect, so you fight the fight imperfectly. Nobody's arrived yet. But by all means, we have to fight. By all means, we have to press forward. By all means, we have to protect what God is giving By all means, we have to strengthen what remains. Now, here's what I take that to mean. Here's what I understand that to mean. God's always giving you grace. He's giving you grace to move forward in faith, away from fear, away from stress, toward completeness in Christ. Always. If you're a a person here today, listening today, and you're like, man, I'm not even a Christian. God's still giving you grace because you're hearing about this complete view of Christ. And he's calling you toward him. He's wooing you toward him. He's inviting you toward him. He's always moving us toward completeness. Now, sometimes we reject that. Sometimes we move away from that. But he's always doing that. So there's always grace. So we have to strengthen what remains. We have to strengthen and cooperate with what God is giving. How many of us today might even say, well, you know, there used to be a time when I was in my Bible all the time. There used to be a time when, man, I listened to worship music on the way to work when I was jogging, and it just fueled me. There used to be a time when I took notes during the messages map, but I, you know, I, kinda, I, I drifted away. There used to be a time when. I journal. There used to be a time when I was in a small group. And what's happened since that used to be a time when? You've probably dropped your guard. And Jesus isn't as sufficient. He's not as complete in your mind. And incomplete Jesus is incomplete you and me. You know, know, in in my life, I'll just sort of tell you how it works, okay? God taught me through great youth ministry, one reason we value student ministry so much and offer these amazing opportunities like the M-Fuge that's coming up, but, but God blessed me with that opportunity. So at a young age, I learned how to spend time with God in the Word of God. Uh, and, and I learned that I can never say God is silent when my Bible is closed. And so I always know When my soul is drifting toward nominal, when Jesus is becoming a little bit less than, I always know, and I correlate it back to, you know what, I've missed time with him. I haven't opened my Bible. And and for me, literally, I can go 24 hours and be okay, but at about the two-day mark, I start looking more like unsaved Matt than the Matt Jesus died to create than the mat Jesus put his spirit in to enable me to grow and move toward completeness. I don't know what it is for you. You know, you wear your armor, not mine. But you got to strengthen and fight the fight. 
And, and so anyway, I, I would just encourage all of you, if you're not having a time with God, we will text it to you. It'll come to your phone. It'll, and it'll just pop up on your screen. We put it in your lap for you. And you know what? They've done all these studies. We're the most studied generation of Christians in the history of the world. And everybody's looking for something new and something to make them fired up and something to make them more alive. But it always goes back a little old school. Do you know what the number one predictor of growth in Christ is? Do you spend daily time or regular consistent time in the Word of God? Period. Period. And so we think that's so important. We want to provide that resource to all of you physically, digitally. It'll just pop up on your phone. 888-744-0761. Just text TWG. All right, so John continues working to move, the, to wake the church of, of Sardis up, to re-embrace this vision of complete Jesus and move out of their nominal, unguarded, apathetic state. So Revelation chapter 3, verse 3. Remember then what you have received and heard. So you got something in your past. Something happened in your past, and you've kind of forgotten it. You've, you know, your great problem, church, is you're amne- you've got to become an amnesiac. You've forgotten something about Christ you've forgotten something what he gave you so he said keep it remember what you got keep it and repent you got some chance you got to be transformed you got to stop doing something start doing something change your mind change your behavior and so the this language received and heard correlates really strongly with something Paul says in Romans 10 17 he says faith comes from hearing and that is hearing the good news about Christ So see the parallels? Received and heard. Remember what you received and heard. And Paul says, hey, this is the faith you got from hearing the good news about Jesus Christ. Jesus died for you. Jesus died instead of you. He rose again so that you could be forgiven, you could be adopted, and God could put his Holy Spirit inside of you, and you could live with him, move with him, follow him, enjoy him, have an identity from him forever and ever, and have an inheritance that will not perish, will not fade, will not pull out. So he says, just remember that. So Paul says, so so John to the church at Sardis, Jesus through John to the church at Sardis is saying, hey, you got to keep returning to what you got. You got to keep returning to the gospel. You have to keep returning to what Jesus did for you. Now, let me stop for just a minute, okay? And let's talk about the gospel. And I want to, this is, the gospel is how you get to heaven. The gospel is how you get a right relationship with God. The gospel is how you really and truly become a truly, fully devoted follower of Jesus or how you become a Christian or how you become a Christ follower. Whatever language you're used to, the gospel, believing that is how you get there. So I'm going to give you two stories or two analogies. And I want you to pick which metaphor, which story you think most correlates to how you became a Christian or how you become a Christian. First story, imagine you're in a lake and and you start to drown and you're flailing, you know, the waves have picked up, there's a storm and you're flailing, you start screaming, help, help, help. And Jesus walks by on the shore And he sees you out there, and he throws you a life preserver, and it lands about 10 yards from you. And so you flail and flail and flail and flail, and you like, and you make it to the life preserver, and you you swim yourself with the life preserver back to shore, and you're like, thank you, Jesus. I don't know what I've done without you. 
And, but you're like, you know what, though? But, uh, but, uh, but it was about 50-50. You saw me, you threw it, I had to swim to it. Some people think that's how, that's how I, you know, I, 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 God does a little bit, I do this. God's part, my part. That, that's what it's like. You know, I'm a good person. I, I, I read my Bible sometimes, and I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I'm not as bad as those people. So, I, so I've contributed something to my salvation by being a moral person, a good person. There's some effort I exerted to get to the life preserver and get to shore. Now, that's, that's story number one. Story number two is this. Imagine you're out same same lake, you're swimming, and, and you're flailing, and, and you start to sink uh, you're just exhausted, you're drowning, you're drowning, and you start to sink, and you sink down to the bottom. And finally, someone on the shore, like your family, your friends, they see you sinking, and they start swimming out to you. But you swing down to the bottom, and while you get to the bottom, you get your foot like wedged between a fallen log, and now you're stuck. So you've sank, you're stuck. Your friends come down, they can't free you, they can't free you, and you die. Unbeknownst to you on the shore, Jesus walks up. And Jesus says, don't worry, I'll find him. I'll set him free. And I'll put my life in him. Which view of salvation, which good news do you believe? Now, full disclosure, when you become a Christ follower... Story two is the closest to what really happens. Now, here's why this is so important. If you think you contributed something to, the, to your own salvation, then you sort of can look at Jesus and say, well, it was 90-10, it was 60-40. And your level of gratitude, your understanding of the completeness Jesus is way different than story number two. Because in story number two, you're like, Jesus, I owe everything for you, to you. Jesus, if it weren't for you, I'm dead, hopeless, helpless, gone. That's why you got to have a complete view of Jesus. Because when you have a complete view of Jesus, you guard him. And you're alert to any danger that would diminish him, grieve him, or wound him in your life. So you see, when, when John, or Jesus through John says the word repent, he's like, look, the gospel demands a response. And if the gospel, as imagined in my story, is you and I stuck, dead, at the bottom of a lake, nobody can find us, and Jesus finds us, and Jesus frees us, and Jesus makes us alive forever in him. If that view of the gospel, what kind of response does that kind of God, that complete, all-powerful, yet gracious and merciful and redeeming God, what kind of response does that demand from us? So what do we got to repent of? For some of us, you know, it's this, that believing without being a disciple has to die. A disciple is a student. A disciple is someone, I want to learn from him. I want to follow him. I want to obey him. Too many people in America, they got the right beliefs, but they're not learning how to live life the way Christ would live it. And thus their peace and joy are not complete. And thus their Christianity is in name only. They look the part, but they ain't it. 
Believing without the right attitude has to die. There are so many people walking around, posting things on social media, and they've got the right beliefs, but their attitude is not one of humility. Their attitude is not one of gratitude. I mean, they they can quote Scripture. They can tell you why everybody out there is wrong. What I see in Scripture is when people get this gospel, they are the most humble, gracious, yet joy-filled people on the planet. You know what Paul said? Paul, who wrote half the New Testament, you know how he described himself? I'm the worst sinner. Because I know how dead, stuck I was at the bottom of the lake of sin. Repent. Unbiblical, unchristlike mental maps have to die. So some of us, we have a view of the world that makes us a victim. We have a view of the world that makes us entitled. We have a view of the world that, that is, makes us cynical, makes us bitter, makes us frustrated. <laughs> That's not the Jesus we follow. That's not the word of God that he puts in us to give us the mind of Christ. And and then finally, one other form of repentance is this. The fear of calling ourselves and others to follow Christ has to die. I'm reading how pastors in white churches are speaking out against racism and people in their church are getting mad about it. And I'm like, have we read the word of God? The first time they tried to kill Jesus is because he spoke against Jewish racism. Luke chapter 4. I'm reading where pastors want to make people feel good. And therefore we don't call other people to follow Christ. The church has adopted, like we're, we're like a carnival cruise commercial. Hey, come in, we'll make you comfortable, we'll take care of you, and we'll serve you. What I read in scripture is the church ought to be like a Marine Corps commercial. You want to be a part of something hard. You want to be a part of something amazing. You want to be a part of something bigger than yourself. You want to serve something that speaks to the image of God made inside of you. Come and join. Come and be a part. Come and contribute. Come and give your life to this God who gave his life for you. That's a vision of Christianity that will survive a virus. That's a vision of Christianity that's bigger than what political party you belong to. That's a vision of Christianity that's bigger than anything the world can give you and can give me. And he continues to try to wake this church up. So he says this. He goes, hey, listen, if you're not alert, I will come like a thief. You'll have no idea at what hour I will come upon you. This is crisis and consequence. And it hits us like a ton of bricks, and it seems to come out of nowhere, but it had really been there all along. It was just a matter of time. So so I, I beg all of you listening, please, listen to me. Don't wait for a crisis to wake up to the reality of God or your need for him, his completeness for you. He'll he'll meet you in crisis, I promise you will. He's that gracious, he's that committed, he's that loving. But he loves us too much not to warn us, to stay alert, be alert. So so understand this, you gotta receive God's warnings as a part of his love. When you read the Bible, you're gonna see warnings. And I I wrote this down because I, I think a lot of us, we don't like warnings. 
right? And so let me, let me just tell you how I wrote this or how I described this, okay? When you think you are God, a warning makes you defensive. When you warn your teenager, you're like, Pfft. right? That's what I like. We read it, oh, God. When you know you're not God and need God, a warning makes you grateful that God loves you so much. So, so for some of us here today, God's warning you to wake you up because he loves you so much. Verse 4, but you, he says, okay, Sardis, let me give you some good news. He goes, you have a few people who have not defiled their clothes. They will walk with me in white because they're worthy. You have a few people who have stuck with Christ through thick and thin. They found the joy. They found the peace. And, and so they're still in your church. They're still in your city. So understand this. Christianity is not a solo sport. You can't fight alone. There's not a single person listening, including myself, that does not need godly community and or a godly mentor and or godly examples. Do not let the virus rob you of community. We have small groups still meeting via Zoom. We have opportunities to get out and, and be the hands and feet of Christ through our hope initiatives. If you, if you just say, hey, I need somebody to talk to, you just got to let your campus pastor know. You don't fight alone. You find people who are going and growing the way you want to go and the way you want to grow, and you say, I am not going to fight alone. Somewhere also in America, we have adopted this, oh, I, I've got my beliefs. I'm a private person. That is one of the most unbiblical things you could ever say. God gives grace through the church. The church is a family, a team, a community, a fellowship. He concludes, in the same way the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes and I will never erase his name from the book of life. Let me tell you what's going on in Sardis in some of the Jewish synagogues as Christians were coming out of Judaism, they would erase their names from the synagogue rolls. Sometimes in Roman cities, criminals would have their names erased from the citizenship rolls. Christians were being criminalized in the Roman Empire in this time, so their names were being erased. And, and so Jesus says, I'm never going to do that. But I will acknowledge his name before my father and before his angels. So let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to his churches. So here, here's another way to wake yourself up. Know that assurance, <coughs> confidence comes from God's perfect commitment to us. I will never be able to give a perfect commitment to God this side of heaven or this side of the second coming. Never because the world, Satan, and my flesh. But my assurance does not come from looking at my performance. My assurance comes from looking at God's commitment to me, proven in his character, proven in the cross, given to me in this promise from the word of God. So some of you right now as I'm speaking, you need to take your eyes off yourself. You need to take the, your eyes off your latest mistake, your latest failure, your latest sense of despair, your latest sense of futility. Get your eyes off it right now in the name of Jesus and put your eyes on Christ crucified, Christ buried, Christ resurrected, Christ sitting at the right hand of God, Christ waiting to call your name out on the day of his return and acknowledge you before his Father in heaven. If that doesn't motivate you to give a little bit more of yourself to him, then let's go back to the lake. 
And let's remind ourselves of us at the bottom, stuck, helpless, and hopeless. And Jesus found us. And Jesus freed us. And Jesus put his life in us. And then finally, keep the end in mind. And commit to that direction today. Not perfection, but direction. I want you to imagine something with me. I want you to imagine you're in the throne room or you're in in heaven right now. Jesus Christ wants to say your name before an audience with his father and angels. And he wants to say, this one here is mine. I love him. This one here is mine. I love her. She's forever with us, God. And would you commit to moving in that direction? I don't know what that looks like for you. But that's the invitation. So for some of you, for some of you, if God is giving you ears to hear, some of you hear a wake up. I've got to be more alert. Some of you need to heed a warning. God has warned you today, this weekend. And all of us need to respond to the committed and complete love of Christ who found us or wants to find you right now at the bottom of the lake, stuck, helpless, and hopeless. But he won't leave you there. And he won't just pull you up for oxygen. He'll put his very life in you. And he's going to take you to completion. So that you stand before the Father and you stand before the angels. And he's proud of you. And he's in love with you. And you have him. And you have his peace. And you have his joy forever. May that truth give us all the grace to fight today and fight tomorrow. And never lose hope. And never lose joy because we have complete Jesus in our hearts by faith. Let's pray together, church. God, I love you so much because you first loved me. God, I love you because you found me at age eight at the bottom of the lake of sin. And you freed me and you put your life in me. And so, God, you deserve my best. You deserve my all. But, God, my flesh, Satan, and the world wants to rob me of more of you. Lord, in the name of Jesus, I pray we would all say, no way Satan, no way sin and flesh, no way world. You are not going to take the best from me. You are not going to rob me of life in Christ. Lord, all over in all six of our locations, and everyone watching, listening online, I pray people right now are a little bit more in love with you or a little bit more interested in you or a little bit more in awe of you, and we would respond with greater commitment to you. We would fight the fight of faith, God. We would refuse apathy. We would refuse complacency. We would stand our ground and stand guard in awe of you, Jesus, who gave your all so that we could be completely yours forever. In the name of the King of Kings, the one who has the sevenfold Spirit of God, Jesus Christ, our Savior and King, we pray. Amen.